Join with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ, for the perfect, perfect Savior. And Lord, I pray that as his word is now proclaimed, I pray that you would submit our hearts to it, that we'd hear it for what it is, and that we would respond the way that sheep would respond or should respond to a good shepherd, so good that he would die for their sins. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49. And as you do so, you have a sermon outline maybe on the bulletin or you got it last night in the, in the email. And I just want to say we're having a bit of a, a modification. It says we're going to be doing Isaiah chapter 49 and 50, um, but decided to do just 49 today. Um, and the reason for that is kind of selfish. In a few, in a few weeks... Um, in a couple of weeks, Jordan will be preaching two sermons in a row, and I did go to Transcona Collegiate Institute, and I know that Isaiah 53 comes a few chapters after Isaiah chapter 49. If I would have preached both 49 and 50 today, then Jordan would be guaranteed to get Isaiah 53. <laughs> As it stands now, if I preach 49 today... 50 next week, Jordan is in a bit of a conundrum. He could do 51 and 52 separately. He's, he's free to do that. He could do them in one shot. And if he did them in one shot, then essentially he would, he would, uh, I would get 53. Anyways, what we're doing is we're setting up the perfect opportunity for Jordan to show how selfless he is. <laughs> Watch for it. Watch for it. Isaiah 53 is coming. <laughs> Pray for him. Let's read, uh, let's read Isaiah chapter 49. And we're going to read just the first seven verses to begin with. Isaiah 49, 1 to 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring, back Jake, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, he says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus far, God's word. Our first point is this. A new Israel is chosen as a light of the world, to gather Israel from the ends of the earth. A new Israel is chosen 
as light of the world to gather Israel from the ends of the earth. Now, we've already seen this bit of this dilemma in the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah says, the servant of the Lord, is he talking about Israel or is he talking about Israel's Messiah? And the answer is both. Both. Israel is the chosen servant of the Lord, that group of people, that nation. But the coming Messiah is also called the servant of the Lord. We've seen this already a couple times in Isaiah. And the point is that both call, calling, them both is, uh, calling them both the servant of the Lord, we understand that the Lord Jesus' responsibility is to serve in the place of God's people, in the place of Israel. What he would do, he would do as a substitute for them. What they were supposed to do and failed, he's now going to do and succeed, but it would count for them. And now we have this, it's ramping up, this question, who is to be called Israel? Should we call Zion, the the natural children of of Abraham, should we call them Israel? Or are we going to call Jesus, Christ, the Messiah, are we going to call him Israel? In chapter 48, verse 1 and 2, we're going to read that. We read that not all Israel is Israel. Chapter 48, verse 1 and 2. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the Holy One, or after the Holy City, and stay themselves in the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. So we've already seen this. That not all Israel is Israel. In fact, Paul is going to reiterate this point in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Not only people who confess Christ, but, all, but those who confess in truth. Remember, he says in, verse, in chapter 48, Isaiah 48, you are called by the name of Israel who came, uh, and came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. So they confess with their mouths, I belong to the Lord, but it says not in truth. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. This is lovely. Romans chapter 10. Verse 9. Maybe very common verses, but you've maybe not understood how they are essentially grabbing from Isaiah 48. Romans 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and here we go, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So we understand that to truly belong to Israel in Isaiah's day and before that was not simply to be a descendant of Abraham, but one who trusted in the covenant, in the oaths that God swore. It was faith, not just words, but faith in the words of God that made you Israel. Only those who have faith in the gospel of Israel's Messiah have the right to claim promises, to hold God to promises made to Israel. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 says, but the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So we've already seen 
that Isaiah calls both Israel and the coming Christ. He calls them the servant of the Lord. And only those who truly believe in the promises of the gospel are actually rightful heirs of the covenant and promises that God has given. They have the right to say, I expect God to keep these promises to me. But now the question, even now that we know who is actually Israel, that is those who are Israel by faith, how is it that even the believers who are sinful, how is it that God could fulfill his promises of eternal blessing to them instead of crushing them for their guilt? And the answer we see very clearly is he's given them a substitute. He's given them a replacement. And here the Messiah is called Israel. The Messiah is actually called Israel here. Now, why we say that it's that? Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 49. Now, maybe he's talking about, maybe he's not talking about the Messiah when he says Israel. But it can't be that because in verse 6, look at verse 6. He says, you're called Israel, right? What is, he, what, is, what is this Israel, this man he's calling Israel? What is his job? It says, verse 6, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So whoever he's calling Israel, his job is to bring back Israel, to restore Israel. It also can't be Isaiah, because this guy's ministry is going to be perfectly successful. And Isaiah's, in Isaiah chapter 6, we're told Isaiah's ministry would essentially fail. Another, another clue is that in verse 2, what does he say about this man's mouth? This man who he calls Israel. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Oh. <laughs> in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16, that's, uh, that's talking about the Lord Jesus. In Revelation 2 verse 16, the Lord Jesus, the mouth, uh, a sword coming out of his mouth. In Revelation 19 verse 15, the mouth of the Lord Jesus, out of it comes a sword. In Revelation 19 verse 21, the same thing. So why is it that the coming Messiah, he would now just say, I'm just going to call you Israel. Why is it that he would do that? Well, it's to clarify this idea of a substitute. He would walk the path that they were supposed to walk with their name tag and do it in their place for their sake. It is as if somebody is writing a test for Israel and on that on the test, you know, the most important part of a test, teachers will joke, most important part, you should be able to get this one right, is your name. Put your name on the test. You've got to get that right. You may get every other thing wrong, but the thing you can probably get right is your name. And so he's writing this test. And in, instead of his own name, he's putting Israel down. Because it's going to count for her benefits. It's going to count as if she had written that test. Or think about running a marathon, a race. You have a bib and you have, you have a number on there or perhaps a name. And you have, he has Israel's name written on his chest when he's running that race. It's going to count as if they did it. Now again, not everyone in Israel, but who? Those who believe in the gospel. And so he's writing it in, and he's writing this test, he's running this race, to use examples, in their place. 
How did he do this? How can we see this in Jesus' life? If you're familiar with Jesus' life, you can see this. And we'll see this. We'll point this out in in a few places. In verse 7, in verse 7, it says, it is one who is deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. So he's somebody who is despised by Israel themselves. Well, in Jesus' life, he was persecuted by Israel as a whole, wasn't he? He was he, not every single person, of course, but he was persecuted by the leaders of Israel, the representatives of Israel. And on the day of his crucifixion, or the day before his crucifixion, he was called out, or the day of his crucifixion, sorry. What were they crying out? Crucify him, crucify him. He was also, he also suffered at the hands of the nations, and we saw that he was crucified by the Romans, who were the representatives of the nations at that time. You can also see things from Jesus' life to show that he was actually walking the path instead of Israel in her place. Israel was called out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, God called his son, right? They were slaves in, Israel, slaves in Egypt. And then God called, him out, called them out of Egypt. Well, wouldn't you know that the Lord Jesus Christ, he was persecuted when, when Herod found out that a child had been born that was the Messiah. He sent a word to kill every single baby boy in Bethlehem. And so where did his parents flee to? They fled to Egypt. And the scripture says this was to fulfill what was written in the scriptures. Out of Egypt, I called my son. At the beginning of this exodus, when Israel, many years earlier, had been called out of Egypt, there was a very similar decree. Pharaoh declared that every single boy born to an Israelite woman would have to be killed. This is at the beginning of Israel's life at the beginning of their history as a nation. And so at the beginning of Jesus' life, the same edict, as we've already seen, was issued by essentially the new Pharaoh, or Herod, kill every single baby boy. Not only this, Israel, at the beginning of their life, they were tempted in the wilderness, weren't they? They went in the wilderness after they rescued from Egypt. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. They were being tested, weren't they? The wilderness is not a good place to be, but the Lord cared for them. And in spite of all this miraculous care, they rebelled against him and they wouldn't trust him. Wouldn't you know at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, after he's baptized, where did he go? He went to be tested in the wilderness for 40 days. He was tested. He was tempted. And he, unlike Israel, was holy in the wilderness. He did not sin against God. In verse 4, it says, in, in, it says that he cried out to God. He suffered. Why is this happening? His ministry, in, in a sense, seemed like a failure, just like Israel's seemed like that sometimes when they were being uh, persecuted or abused by others. We also see that, that the Messiah is called, in verse 6, I will make you as a light for the nations. This is Israel's job. They were supposed to be a light for the nations to show the goodness of God to all the nations. And they continually failed to do so. But Jesus is called the light of the nations here. 
And wouldn't you also know, what does he cry out? In the gospel, he says, I am the light of the, and the light of the world, which is a synonym for the nations. Jewish people would have said the world and the nations, it would have meant they went at the same thing. And so what he's saying here is that by his ministry, Israel will be gathered, true Israel will be gathered. Those who have faith in God's covenant promises to Israel. And he will gather them from the ends of the world. Now, at the time that this was first delivered, the nation of Israel was being spread out to what would have felt like the ends of the earth, scattered. Imagine being a believing Israelite, reading these words, sitting in Babylon. What a comfort that would have been to you. That the Lord would send Israel, a man who he would call Israel, who would live in your place and who would gather Israel from the ends of the earth. What a comfort that would have been to those who were confessing faith in the Lord and his gospel. Let's continue on reading 8 to 13. And from here, we're going to get this point. The new Israel is himself the covenant of freedom, inheritance, and care. Let's read 49 verse 8 to 13. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall, be fe- they shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a rod. And my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Thus far, God's word. Okay? So now we move on here to see that new Israel, Christ, he's talking about Christ. He would himself be the covenant. Did you see that in verse 8? I will keep you and give you, this is the Father talking to God the Son, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. What does this mean? That Christ is the covenant that God gives to the people. What it means that if you have him, you have the covenant. That means the blessings are yours if you have him. If you have Christ, you have the covenant, you have all the promises of God, you have all the oaths of God, you have all the blessings of God that he would inherit, you have him. He inherits them, and you have those if you have him. You have all the blessings that God has sworn. This is why in the New Testament, the scriptures will say that Christ is all. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23 says this, he gave him Sorry, let's read that. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, verse, 20, uh, verse 22 and 23. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet. And listen to the language here. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you understand what this is saying? 
If God gives all things to Christ, if he gives the inheritance of the world to Christ, if he gives all the inheritance to him, if he gives them to Christ and then you are added to Christ, then you have all things. This is why Christ is called the head and the church is called his body. Zion is called his bride. And we read in Ephesians chapter 5 that when the two become one, he considers that bride as if it were him. So the church is married to Christ. The two become one flesh. And so all his inheritance is his people's inheritance. And we are united to him by faith. So that means, dear church, if you have him, you have everything. He is, as Ephesians 1 says, your all in all. It is not based on your ability to keep God's commands, to conquer evil, to pay your debt, or to conquer death, or even to pray to God as Father. All of these things are yours if you have Christ. Now let's look at some specifics from the covenant that are yours if you are, have Christ. You have all of these things. Let's look, about, look at freedom, the idea of freedom. Do you see this in verse 9? Saying to the prisoners, come out. So in the short term, the short term fulfillment of that prophecy would have been freedom from Babylon, right? He's going to send Cyrus, and Cyrus is going to, to conquer Babylon and then send Israel back. No longer slaves and exiles in Babylon, he's going to send them home. So that's the short term. But if you were an Israelite before this is fulfilled, you would have immediately had the promise of freedom from a greater slave master, which is your own guilt and sin. And this is true for us as well. Freedom from sin. No longer a taskmaster that can control us. Another immediate, immediate thing that we are freed from is freed from condemnation. Immediately, we are freed from condemnation. Immediately, there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. Because we have all the blessings that he would deserve based on how he took the test, based on how he ran the race. That's an immediate freedom, a free from condemnation. But there's an ultimate fulfillment as well. Ultimately, we will be free from the presence of sin. Ultimately, we will be free from the presence of sin and from even the presence of enemies, those who hate us, no longer having to even fight against sin. That is the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant promise. Let's look at inheritance as well. We see there's promise of inheritance, and usually with inheritance, the, the scripture is talking about land, these land inheritances. So what is the immediate this short-term fulfillment of that prophecy would have been Israel being restored to their land. And Cyrus, God through Cyrus, is going to fulfill that promise. But immediately, there's another one. There's the immediate fulfillment. If you are an heir, that, if you have an inheritance, that means you're an heir, and so you have a relationship to God as his firstborn. And any believing Israelite, even in Babylon, would have known immediately, yes, what do you call a person who gets an inheritance? You call them an heir. 
And that was a relationship that they could have had immediately with God. God as their father. They could cry out to him and know that he cares for them and answers their prayers and hears them and loves them. That's an immediate, that's an immediate promise fulfillment that we can have even now. If you have Christ, you are immediately an heir of God. We are waiting our inheritance, but we are immediately heirs. Immediately, we enjoy the position that only Christ deserves, and that is as firstborn son. Dear friends, you know that means that when you pray, if you pray in Christ's name, that God will answer your prayers not based on how you deserve, but based on what Christ deserves. Now, ultimately, there's an ultimate fulfillment of this promise as well. Not only was Abraham's offspring, Abraham's children, promised to inherit just the borders of the land of Israel. Let's read in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. What was their inheritance? The inheritance of Abraham's descendants. Romans 4, 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. The ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy is if you have Christ, not only was Israel going to be restored to their land after Cyrus's, uh, the salvation that God would bring through Cyrus, but we, if we have Christ, inherit the world. He also promises care. Did you notice that? He promises care, and he uses Exodus language. If you're familiar with Israel's Um, Israel's history, right? They were slaves in Egypt and he rescued them from Egypt and he cared for them in the wilderness for 40 years. So the road to Canaan was a treacherous one, but the Lord made it smooth. He cared for them miraculously on the way. And so what would have been the, the, uh, the near fulfillment? Well, obviously that means that Cyrus is going to say, go back to Israel and it's going to work. The immediate fulfillment is that God would care for them in Babylon. And the ultimate fulfillment will come when the Lord Jesus takes care of us perfectly and wonderfully, free from any concerns or cares in the new heavens and earth. These are all things that are yours immediately and will ultimately be even more ours if we have the Lord Jesus. And God, anybody can say these things, but in order for us to have confidence that these things would be true, God used Cyrus, prophesied Cyrus would do these things as a foreshadow of what would ultimately happen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look here at 14 to 21, and we'll get this point from it. Israel will be rebuilt by and with her former enemies. Isaiah Chapter 49, verse 14 to 21. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she would have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. 
As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and desolate places and your de- devastated land. Surely now you will be. It, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your years, "The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in." Then you will say in your heart, "Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come from?" Thus, thus far God's word. So we see here that Israel, the promise that God says is theirs because of their substitute Israel. Israel will be built by her former enemies. Now, of course, this is in the, the, near, the near fulfillment of that after Isaiah gives it is that Cyrus is going to use Babylon's wealth and the other nations under his control to rebuild Israel. He's going to rebuild the temple with, and, and, and the city of Jerusalem with Ezra and Nehemiah. He's going to do these things. But it actually goes beyond that. It says Israel will be rebuilt with her, not just by, but with her former, enemy, uh, former enemies. Children, which are Zion's, yet which she did not bear. So there's children that Zion herself didn't bear, but yet they're her children nonetheless. Where did these children come from? They were her former enemies. He's gathering people to build up the people of God who used to be the enemies of the people of God. Look at verse 18. Lift up your eyes around and see as they gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Brother George read for us Revelation 21. The bride, Zion, New Jerusalem, Israel, coming down from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And she is adorned in this passage, adorned with what? With people who used to be enemies of God's people, but who God conquers and he makes them part of Zion itself. And so we see that Zion is a bride gathered from all nations. But let's pay attention to the border here. What's the problem with this? What is the problem with Zion being built up with enemies from all nations by the Messiah? What's the problem? people who are not naturally born to, uh, to Abraham's physical descendants. What's the problem with, with, with uh, Zion being built with all these people? What is the problem that happens? Did you see the problem? What's, there's a complaint that arises. What's the complaint? There's not enough room here. We need to redraw these boundaries. And so what are the boundaries now of the bride of Christ? The people who belong to new Israel. What are the, the boundaries well, I'm sure we can see these in Matthew 28. What does Jesus say? The new Israel, the substitute for Israel. What does he say? All authority in heaven and in Canaan. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. A Romans 4 also said the inheritance would not just extend to the boundaries, the borders of Canaan. The, the inheritance that was given to Israel would be 
the entire world. Now, what are the benefits of this? That means that one day there will be no inside and outside. There will be no borderlands that we're not supposed to go to. No place where you could look and see enemies or see danger encroaching or approaching. You know, to use the example from the Lion King, you know, nobody will sit you up and and put their arm around you and, and look off in the distance and say, now that, don't ever go there. The whole world will be the garden. The whole world will not be a wilderness. But I want you to also see here, and we're going to see in the next the next portion we're going to read that Zion's children are going to be raised by her enemies. Zion's children are going to be raised by her enemies. Zion herself will always be the beneficiary of any world events, any kings or governments, regardless of their motivations and in spite of their motivations. The Lord will use all of these things to build up the body of the Messiah. Let's continue on. We'll read chapter 49, verse 22 to 26. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring up your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster, mother, foster fathers, and queens their, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own Uh, blood as with wine, then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. From here, from here we're going to get our fourth point. When the signal is lifted high, the strong man will be bound and the nations will bring in Israel's children. So the first installment of this prophecy, in fact, the security that the ultimate one is going to come, is that Cyrus is going to, Cyrus is going to return Israel to their land. So he's going to pay for them. He's going to, he, he's, going to, uh, he's going to finance them coming back to their land. A man who doesn't love the Lord, and he's going to force people who don't love them to participate in this process. But there's a second installment of this, a more ultimate fulfillment. And we can see this. If, we, if you turn to John chapter 12, we can see this, that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of these things. John chapter 12, 20 to 36. We're going to read a good portion here so we can see how the Lord Jesus is fulfilling this. John 12, verse 20. Now among these, this is after, by the way, the triumphal entry. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? 
Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So here we see, after the triumphal entry, the trigger, the signal that Jesus knew it was his time was that Greeks come to him. These are not Jewish people. These are straight Gentiles. They are the Gentilest Gentiles who ever Gentiled. These people are coming to him, and he knows my time has come. The hour has come. The nations are coming to me. And he knew that the nations would not come to him until he had died for their sins. He said, the signal that's going to come up, that's going to draw people, my bride from all the nations, is the cross. Him lifted up. He said, he lifted up. He means that is to show what kind of death he's going to die. To be crucified, killed instead of people. To be damned for people. Not just die as a criminal, but to be damned by God instead of his people. Because the Lord Jesus, as new Israel, is going to inherit the entire world. But if he doesn't die for his people... How many citizens are going to be on that world? Zero, because they're all going to be crushed by the wrath of God in hell. But if he wants to have citizens, people to share this with, a bride, a family, he must be killed for them. He must be crucified. He must take their punishment. So he's not inheriting an empty world, but one full of children. So he's inheriting not a damned bride of all nations, but an atoned, forgiven, debt-paid bride. And this is how he disarms that tyrant, Satan, the ruler of the world. This is how he does it. You saw that in John. He said, now is the time. Now the ruler of the world must be cast out. Isaiah says, can you, can you rescue these people unless you deal with their powerful tyrant? And he disarms them. We saw this in John 12. We see this in in Revelation 20. We see this in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says, my ministry is binding the strong man, which is Satan, so that I can go into all the world and sack his house. I could ransack it. I could pillage it and take all kinds of treasure. Now take that treasure motif. What's that treasure going to do on the bride? Where's it going? It's her jewelry. It is the people he's taking from the nations. Dear friends, if you have believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you heard of Christ crucified, if that gospel, that signal was lifted up and you heard and believed, you are treasure that Christ Jesus, new Israel, has taken from the kingdoms of the world and made his own and is adorning his people with, which he treasures. How does he bind How does he restrain that strong man? First of all, Satan can no longer keep the nations from coming to Christ. As I look around this this, this world, as I look around this room, I see evidence of that, even in myself. But he does this 
by canceling their debt. It has been said that in the Old Testament, people were saved by credit, a debt that would one day be paid. In the New Testament, people are saved by debit with money that's already in the bank. In the Old Testament, they believed Christ will pay for my sins. In the New Covenant, we believe Christ has already paid for my sin. And so the devil can no longer stand in front of the Lord and say, you can't forgive that bride. She's a wicked, filthy, guilty bride. Look at all her sin. You can't be unjust and just ignore her sin. Now, he could say that in the past. And he would say that his response to Satan would be, don't worry, I'll do it one day. Now Satan can't say that bride's debt hasn't been paid because it's already been paid. The accuser of the saints has nothing to say anymore. The bride has been paid for. Her sin has been atoned. There's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, Let's wrap this up and put a bow on it. In Christ, you have a substitute, not merely an example. You have a man who took the test and wrote your name on it, who ran the race with your bib. It counts for you. When you stand before God on judgment day, if you have faith in Christ, his record is what the Lord will look at. And if his record is perfect, you go to heaven. Dear friends, don't be foolish enough to think that your own record is good enough. It's not. On judgment day, you don't want God looking at your record. You want looking at Christ's. He's not merely an example. If you think you're saved by Christ's example, you will go to hell. You need somebody who ran the race in your place who wrote the test in your place. And if you have Christ, you have all. You have everything. Christ is given as a covenant. It means if you have him, you have every single promise, every single condition fulfilled in this man. If you have him, you have everything. You are an heir of the world. Heir of eternal life. The other thing that we need to look at is the nations are submissive to God and to his bride. They are our surrogate mothers and fathers. That means in in one real sense that, that we come from the nations. But it also means that the rulers of the nations, the kings and queens, they are always working for the benefit of the church. And they do so even if they're licking the dust. That's even if they hate doing it. Every single decision that is being made by a ruler or a powerful person right now is God sovereignly working to build his bride. Every single mass migration, every single single terrible policy, every single good policy, every single, every single, every single, every single thing is the rulers of the nations even if they don't like it, bringing treasure into Zion. And what is that treasure? The treasure is the redeemed people, those who Christ purchased with his blood. They're giving earrings and bracelets and anklets and hair ties and all that stuff to the bride, whether they like it or not. Everything that is happening 
in the world is God exercising his authority over the nations to gather his bride to new Israel, to the Lord Jesus, so we can share in all he has done. I think we also need to see this, that the gathering of these people happens when the signal is raised. What is the signal that is raised? We saw in Isaiah, the signal was the, was the servant himself. And then we're also going to see in John chapter, John chapter 12, what specifically about that servant is the signal, the thing that gathers people, that gathers the church from all tribes, tongues, and nations, and holds them together. What is it? Is it that we have the right preaching of the law? We can tell the, right, we can tell the difference between right and wrong. We can tell what a girl is. We can tell what a boy is. Is that what gathers the people? Is that what gathers the bride? No, it's not. It's true. It's not what gathers the people. It's not what gathers the bride. It's not what saves the bride and makes her his. What is it that saves the people, gathers them together? What is the signal? Jesus says, when I am lifted up, and he says, I'm talking about how I die. The thing that gathers the church, the thing that makes people a church, the thing that make somebody a Christian that saves and binds the church and holds them is the preaching of the gospel. The law is good. The law of God is good. It doesn't save. Somebody can agree with the law and not be saved. To be saved, you have to believe. I am a sinner who has broken God's law. And God loved me so greatly, he sent me someone else to keep the law instead of me, and then to be damned for my breaking of the law. And that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he died for my sins. And he was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. Dear friends, let us remember this in this cultural chaos that we are in right now. God is not just using this, he is authored these events for the benefit of his church. And the thing that saves people is not getting gender right. Now I'm telling you, it's true. A transformed heart will have God's view of gender, but that's not what saves people. The gospel of Christ crucified for sinners is the magnet that draws the members of the body, the body parts of the bride, to the groom. Let us never forget that. I want to end with verse 13. What is our response? What is the right response? The right response when we hear of such a substitute. Somebody taking the test and putting our name on it. Running the race with our name. Verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth, Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that you have not only given us a good example in Christ, but a substitute. One who would run the race in our place and who would finish it perfectly. We thank you, Lord, that we do not become part of your people. We do not become your children based on our own performance. 
but Christ's and through faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would work that faith in every person who is here right now. That if our eyes have been taken off of that and we've been praying and hoping that you will bless us based on our obedience, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for that sin and you would turn us from it. And set our eyes firmly and only on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?